Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him? Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lion's. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, Aha! Aha! Our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Psalm 35. I hope you tracked uh, with the psalm as Sean read it. And let me start with a question. Have you ever, have you ever cursed someone? I don't mean cursed at them. I mean, I mean, called a curse down on them. Like asked God to utterly destroy them. Have you ever done that? Because that seems to be what we see in Psalm 35. Psalm 35 is the first really whole song. We saw hints of it in Psalm 7, but it's the first Entire psalm classified as, and here's the word, it's an old word, imprecatory psalm. To imprecate means to curse or to call down or to invoke supernatural power 
uh, down upon someone's enemies, to call down a curse on someone. And when we define the psalm that way, it seems to be an oxymoron with God's grace and forgiveness and long-suffering. An oxymoron is a figure of speech with apparently contradictory terms. For example, jumbo shrimp. Right? Those two things should not go together. Or civil war. There's nothing civil about war. Or crash landing. Right? It's, mm, it's either a crash or it's a landing. I'm not calling it both of those. Some would argue that the term mature male is an oxymoron. Some. I didn't say me. How does cursing in the form of an imprecatory prayer align with God's grace and love? And we need to remember, because some people will draw the conclusion, well, the Old Testament God is completely different than the New Testament God. That's a very dangerous thought pattern because it's unbiblical. And a matter of fact, in the New Testament, if you turn your pages to the New Testament, let me just read this. One of Jesus' disciples said this, sometimes it, our tongue, our speech, praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so, James reasons, blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Listen to his conclusion. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. So was it not right for David to pray an imprecatory prayer in Psalm 35? That's why imprecatory greeting cards don't make sense. Right? Dear enemy of mine, I pray you get tangled in a net and slip in a dark place. That's basically what David prayed. Or imprecatory cupcakes. Right? That's never going to be a good startup business. Like, I hope your destruction happens soon. Right? Oh, yummy. Let me have two of those. See, we, we laugh at it because of the sort of the twisted alignment between what we know to be true of Jesus and what we see David praying. And I'm going to say this. I think it's because we misunderstand the nature of an imprecatory psalm, not because we have misunderstood the nature of God, though in some cases that may also be the problem. That's the tension in this psalm. It's text and tone are that of cursing are that of vindication or of judgment. For example, look at Psalm 35, verse 8. Let me give you just two examples. Psalm 35, verse 8, David prays this. Let destruction come down upon him when he does not know it. Look at verse 26. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor. And it's not an isolated Old Testament idea because we see in the New Testament in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51, just listen to this part of the narrative in the gospel. It says, Jesus set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. When James, by the way, James, who said blessing and cursing come from the same mouth, Brethren, these things ought not to be so. James and John saw this. John, right? The apostle of love. James, who wrote about the tongue. They said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? Where did they get that idea from? Where did James and John get the fire from heaven reaction from? Well, those men knew the Psalms. 
Specifically, seven psalms that contain harsh judgments upon the enemies of the psalmist. Psalm 35, 55, 59, 69, 79, 109, and 137. These are imprecatory psalms, or psalms of anger, some have called them, or psalms of wrath. They invoke a supernatural curse down upon the enemies. But here's what we need to understand. We see cursing right next to blessing everywhere from Moses to John in Revelation. From Genesis 3:14 and 15 all the way to Revelation 22:19, you have cursing and blessing next to each other in every single book of the Bible. Jesus himself used similar language when he, when he used the word woe, which means a warning of grief and extreme sadness. Luke 6, 24 to 25, Jesus has a string of woes, but probably the one that is most well known to us is found in Matthew 23, where there's this succession of woes. And what makes it so surprising is these woes are delivered to Jewish religious leaders. Let me give you an example. We can't read all of Matthew 23, but listen to what Jesus said. To these men. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land. You know that just because you enter a new country and learn the culture and speak the language and Minister to people does not make you a godly cross-cultural worker. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Jesus said that. And that leaves us with a question. How should Christians respond to psalms that invoke destruction or curses upon one's enemies? Because some have said, even C.S. Lewis comments on this in his book on the Psalms, he says that the Church of England has actually made a list of Psalms to completely omit out of the Psalter that are of no use whatsoever. And what we would call that is liberal theological thinking, because that practice, by the way, does not end. It's called a doctrine of convenience, where you simply take scissors and start to cut out every portion you do not like. That is not biblical Christianity. Let's let Scripture answer that question of what we do with Psalm 35. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, written by the Apostle Paul, who both he and Peter quoted from those imprecatory psalms I just listed. They both quote them in the New Testament. Paul says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Psalm 35 is profitable for teaching. For reproof, Psalm 35 is profitable for reproof, for standing something that has fallen over back up again. For correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Psalm 35 is breathed out by God and is therefore profitable for us, needful for us to look at and consider. As a matter of fact, where did Jesus in his darkest agony as a human being on the cross, where did he turn where did his heart and mind run to when it was the Father who finally separated from the sin sacrifice he provided? He turned to Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew the Psalms 
the Old Testament hymn book. They are profitable for us. Psalm 35 is profitable for us. And they were profitable for the Son of God when He took on human flesh. Psalm 35, you've noticed it's a huge psalm. We're going to divide it into three sections. The first section is ten verses. It ends with a hope, with a hope of deliverance and a promise to praise. The middle section is eight verses. It too ends with a hope of deliverance and a promise to praise. And the final section is ten verses that again ends on, it seems to be the chorus in this song, just like we would sing this morning in return to the chorus, there is a hope of deliverance and a promise to praise. Here's what the psalm addresses. And we'll sort of, this will be our outline as we look at these three sections because it's something all of us have faced or are facing or will face. Verses 1 to 10, unfair treatment, but not without hope. Verses 11 to 18, receiving evil for the good that you have done, but not without hope. And third, verses 19 to 28, Gloating of the wicked when you finally trip and stumble, even though you're a righteous person trying to do right. And they go, ha ha. But not without hope. All three of these land there. So let's look at verses one to ten. Unfair treatment. The first section uses terms both from the courtroom and the battlefield. Look at verse one. Contend, O Lord. He says it again with those who contend with me. The idea is litigate or even as the NIV says, um, bring a lawsuit against them. That's David's prayer to God. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against, there's the military terms, fight against those who fight against me. David is basically saying, I'm outnumbered. I'm in a desperate situation. God, would you fight and contend for me? And then, just so you don't miss it, it's interesting that David doesn't say God show them mercy. He simply then goes on to list four pieces of weaponry. Look at verse 2. And so they're all attached to these verbs. Take hold of shield, God. Take hold of buckler, which is a large shield. And rise for my help. Draw the spear and the javelin against my pursuers, which seems to be Saul's favorite weapon when he's angry and aiming it either at his son or at David. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. See, this picture of a divine warrior, though foreign to much evangelical thought and discussion, is not foreign to either the Old Testament or the New Testament. This is what David is praying. David is in such a desolate, desperate situation that he's asking God to rise like a military hero champion and fight for him. It's really a beautiful picture. And and it's almost as though in response to David's request, Yahweh runs through the chaos of battle, moving people out of his way like a warrior hero, spear and shield in hand to champion David's cause because David's cause is whose cause? When When he's serving righteously, it is God's cause. So what David is asking is, God, resist those who are resisting you. Contend against those, litigate against those who are litigating and bringing a legal charge against you. That's what he's asking. And we have to square this with the truth that Hebrews 13.8 says, that Jesus Christ is the same. Do you know this? 
He's the same what? Yesterday and today and forever. So when you see these pictures of a divine warrior champion, it's not that Jesus is entirely different than that picture. It's a false dichotomy that we've created in our minds if we assume that. For example, let me read to you 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 to 8. It is talking about Jesus. I want you to hear the language and sort of develop this picture in your mind that the apostle puts forward. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting, here's the word, vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Even the one who said, bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who utterly despise you. Turn your cheek and offer the other if you are disrespected. By the way, he's not talking about not defending your life there. It is, it is a form of disrespect. Turn to him the other also. Allow yourself to be shamed for the cause of Christ. This is the same Jesus appearing in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So David's request is that God would deal with his opponents as they are dealing with him. It's the principle of sowing and reaping. We can pray that. We don't execute the reaping, though sometimes we want to. Right? Oh, you sowed that on me? Okay, you just wait. Next week, you're going to reap the whirlwind, right? That's our heart and our spirit. David does not take the law into his own hands. He does not take the fight, if you would, into his own hands out of a personal vendetta. But he turns to God. It's an exemplary response of being treated unfairly. He prays specifically. Matter of fact, it's in keeping with Romans 12:19, where the Apostle Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written, and then Paul goes ahead and quotes Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So let me ask you, who has treated you unfairly? I can make a list. I'm 51 years old. I have a list of hurts and harms and abuses, slander, wrong accusations. Who's on your list? Do you know that God can, can counter the balances better than you can? Sometimes we'll be too harsh in our payback. Sometimes we won't be harsh enough. You know what the safest way forward is? And this does not mean that we don't help by being salt and light and bring justice to this earth and come to judgments. What it does mean is that there is no vengeance out of a personal bitterness or hurt. You leave that to the Lord where God says in both the Old and the New Testament, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Jesus quoted Leviticus 19.18 when he said this, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is what David is doing. He is leaving room through a prayer for God to act. And that is a scary thought if you find yourself on the wrong side. He goes to explain a military attack in verses 4 to 8. I want to specifically look at verse 4. He says this, Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. David is running for his life. This isn't just a discomfort. This isn't just a partial bullying 
These people are pursuing David to kill him. It's a desperation pray. And then look at verse 5. He says, let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. This echoes Psalm 1. This is, Psalm 1 is the entryway to the whole 150 psalms. It's the psalm of two ways. And, and there in Psalm 1 verse 4 it says this, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Do you know what David is praying? He's simply praying that God would fulfill Psalm 1 in his moment. That's all he's praying. David isn't making sure it's fulfilled, but he's turning to God to fulfill that. And he, and he talks about a practice called wind winnowing, which is an agricultural method still used today uh, that separates grain from straw. It's simply where you throw the grain up and the weight of the true kernel goes up in the air, as does with the chaff or the straw and the wind. If, if you do it at the right time, which they would, the wind would blow away that which is hollow and worthless. Here's what David is praying. God, would you winnow the hollow and worthless people? And may the wind that blows through be the angel of Yahweh driving them out. Do you know you can pray that? At the same time in your spirit saying, not my will, but what? But your will be done. Look at verse 6. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. See, David knew what it was like to be pursued. He's being pursued in the wilderness. He's outnumbered, outmanned, outweaponed. It's an unjust attack. And David's not a perfect man. Even pre-Bathsheba, pre-Uriah, he is not a perfect man. But he is a righteous man. And he is described as a man after God's own heart. And look at what he says two times in verse 7. Look at the text. For what? For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. I'm going to read a narrative section I want you to listen carefully and I want you to sense and discern the spirit of David to sort of help interpret Psalm 35. I want you to hear David's words. David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? These are the false witnesses that he's going to mention in Psalm 35. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, Saul. But I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Look at how he addresses Saul. See my father. That's David to Saul. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. He's being pursued without cause. May the Lord, then he says this, I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. Listen to the wording. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. That's the spirit of Psalm 35. May the Lord do a work against you according to your deeds, but I will not avenge you. I will not be against you. He says this, as the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the kingdom of Israel come out? This is what David is saying to Saul. After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? He's, he's 
ensuring Saul of not only his humility, but that he is no threat to Saul's throne. Then David says this, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me out from your hand. That's the spirit that should shape and season Psalm 35. A spirit of humility, a spirit of non-vengeance personally, but of entrusting the situation, the unfair treatment to God. I think of our Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, who experienced unfair treatment from the moment He entered into public ministry to the moment He breathed His last breath. The perfect, gracious, kind Messiah was hated. And listen to what He quotes in John 15.25. Jesus said this, The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. Listen to this statement. They hated Me without cause. It's exactly what David is experiencing and exactly what the Son of Man then comes and experiences as our high priest. Unfair treatment. Jesus knows the experience of being being treated unfairly. He came into the world to set things right, not immediately, but ultimately. And I love this. David did not take justice against Saul into his own hand, but neither could David make Saul just. Jesus, better than David, took our sin upon Him so that we could receive His righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God the Father made Him, Jesus, to be sin. Not a sinner, but a sin sacrifice who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. David can't do that for you. David may not have avenged himself against you, but David doesn't have any righteousness to give to you so that you can stand before the Father as perfect as Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.18, it says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. David cannot do that for you. But Jesus Christ can. Look at verse 3. And we're spending a lot more time on the first section because the latter sections sort of repeat these ideas in a three-cycle, if you would, a, a prayer cycle. But look at verse 3. Say to my soul. He's actually asking God, God, confirm this to your servant. I am your salvation. And nothing and no one else can be your salvation except Jesus Christ. Then he ends with the anticipation of deliverance and praise. Look at the second, second section. Verses 11 to 18. Receiving evil for good. Look at verse 11. Malicious witnesses. Verse 12. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft, which means desolate, like a, like a, a wilderness with no water. David is going to put forward his righteousness. This is probably referring back to a time when Saul faced a terminal illness, a serious illness. And David's response was to fast as though he was his own father. He looked at verse 14, I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother, as one who laments his mother if she were sick. I bowed down. He literally puts his head down and mourns in grief. And he's doing this for his enemy. Even within this imprecatory psalm, you're starting to see these these forward glimpses of our Lord Jesus Christ interceding for those who are His enemies. Look at verse 15. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. I mean, it's really the picture of vultures surrounding a wounded animal that's not quite dead yet, and they start to snip at it. 
They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. We've seen this in Africa where hyenas will come along and start to pull flesh off of a wounded living animal. It's a gruesome, violent picture. Look at verse 16. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. Again, the picture of the Lord Jesus becomes clearer. False witnesses rose up, but the the witnesses never agreed. They finally took Jesus' words that He spoke to condemn Him. There He sits hanging on a cross, suffering an excruciating death, and the soldiers are there casting lots for His robe. It's an incredible picture. And what does Jesus do? He too prays, doesn't He? And what does He say? He could have prayed Psalm 35. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And also, it ends, verses 17 to 18, with the anticipation of deliverance and a promise of praise. You think of Philippians 4, 6 to 7. Even as we're in the midst of unfair treatment, in the midst of receiving evil for good, it says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, the form of a beggar, a supplicant, in the midst of trouble and danger, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The third and final section, verses 19 to 28, is shaped by this idea of David's enemies gloating over him, literally mocking him. Look at verse 19. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. And let not those wink the eye. That that simply means to act duplicitly, like two-faced. It's almost as if you're trying to appease two friends of yours that are not friends with each other. And you tell the one, oh, no, 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 I love you. You're my friend. And you look at the other one and you wink. Like, not really. That's what he's talking about here. And again, he says this, look at, look at the latter part of verse 19, who hate me without what? Without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open their mouths against me. They say, ha ha, ha our eyes have seen it. See, they are confident they have the upper hand. They are confident they have condemned him through malicious false witnesses. So he pleads for deliverance. Look at verse 22. And I want you to notice here, Sort of the word play of appealing to God. So the enemy said what? Aha, we have what? We've seen it. We know you're guilty. We have enough to hang you. Look at verse 22. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent. Lord, you see all things. You've seen the truth. Be my witness and my judge, O Lord. Be not far from me. The witnesses claimed they had seen it with their own eyes. And now David appeals to God who has seen it with his own eyes. He sees everything perfectly. So look at verse 23. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God. And again, it's according to God's righteousness. But let them not rejoice over me. See, David, even if he did feel vindictive, did the right thing in Psalm 35. He did not take the law into his own hands. 
He did not kill Saul when he had the opportunity. When, it, when his friends and his counselors were even saying, God has given Saul into your hands. David still would not lift a knife to Saul's throat. What he did do is he committed it to the Lord through prayer. Three cycles of prayer. Ten verses ending on hope and a promise of praise. And eight verses ending on hope and a promise of praise. And ten more verses ending on hope and a promise of praise. Do you know that even when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, when He said this, pray this, God's kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know what we are actually praying? We are praying that every other kingdom be destroyed. We are praying that every evil person slip in a dark place. We are praying that whether it is entertainment or political or personal, we are praying that all those other kingdoms that lift their fists against God, as Psalm 2, they rage against God's anointed, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We are praying that they slip and they move away and they dissolve and God's kingdom comes, His kingdom of righteousness. That is why that we, even though we're treated unfairly, even though we receive evil for good, and even though these witnesses rise up against us and the enemies may gloat, we can cast all our anxieties on God. Why? Because He cares for us. And He sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that through Him He might save us. I want to end where all three choruses in this psalm end. I'm going to ask you a few questions. What difficulty are you facing? Or what danger are you in? Or what desperation overwhelms you? Three times in Psalm 35, there's the anticipation of deliverance and praise. I want you to look at these. Look at verse 9. Then my soul will, future tense, rejoice in the Lord, exulting in His salvation. David hasn't been granted the deliverance yet. But he is trusting in God to the point that he said, I will rejoice in you. I will exult in your rescue. All my bones, everything within me shall, future tense, say this, O Lord, who is like you? And the answer to that rhetorical question is there is no one like God. Look at the, look at the second chorus, verse 18. I will, future tense, thank you in the great congregation. It's now not personal. He's actually thanking them in the midst of the throng of the congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. That hopeful anticipation of deliverance. That's what hope is. It's confident expectation. And look at the final chorus. Look at verse 27 and 28. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of His servant. Then my tongue, future tense, shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Good will overcome and banish evil. It is already positionally true in Christ. It is being unfolded and it is practically true as well until it is finally realized in your trouble, in your unfair treatment, in the malicious witnesses that slander you, when you receive evil for good, when your enemies gloat over your downfall. Hope in God 
and say, I will trust in you. I entrust this situation to you. And I will praise you. I'm going to invite the worship team forward. And I'm going to read two passages. One long and one single verse. As the music team comes forward. Peter had learned this. Peter had learned Psalm 35. Peter had seen Jesus receive unfair treatment. Peter had been part of the disciples that wanted to respond wrongly. Listen to what he says later in his life as a mature man, as a, as a mature elder. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 2. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. Jesus, before he suffered on the cross, died and rose again, said this. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let's pray.